Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweibach. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Rabbi Matthew Gewurz. I first got to know Matt back in 1992 when we began rabbinical school together, and he has become a dear, dear friend. Today I talked to him about his book, To Build a Brave Space, The Making of a Spiritual First Responder. Matthew talks about 9-11, his rabbinate, how we navigate a divided America politically. It's a great conversation. Stay tuned and be inspired. It's nice not to. It is good. So, um, so your dad was from Poland. My dad was from. He was born here barely. He didn't speak English till he was four. Was he made in Poland, born in America, kind of thing? Uh, no, he was, but but almost. Yeah, my grandfather, who was born in 1910 in Omaha, he used to say they used to say about him that he was made in Poland and born in America because his older brother was born in Poland. So why did how did they end up all the way in Omaha? Like a cousin, you know, and it was 1910. So many Jews had come through the Lower East Side after the Kishniev pogroms that people went further west to get work. Wow. So they ended up in Omaha. Um, where did your dad immigrate? Or where did her, I guess he was born in America, but where did the family immigrate to in America? Uh, for the you know, Lower East Side and then Brooklyn. Right. Um, and how about your mom's side? They came, he came, my great grandfather came by himself at 14 and then basically supported the family from here. Wow. And then brought them over slowly but surely. And also Lower East Side to Brooklyn. Also from Poland? No, Russia for Ukraine. Huh. And one became a, my uh, dad's side became a donut maker. Very, like uh, Jay Gewurz's Colors and Donuts. It became a wholesale, supported the whole. Wow. All the siblings. Like, they all worked for him. And my great-grandfather... And, his, and his, his, he was on the Lower East Side? Uh, Brooklyn. Humboldt wow. Avenue. And then my great-grandfather became a camp owner. Wow. Where, um, famously, Sandy Koufax went to camp. Wow. So that was uh, in Kingston, New York, where a lot of camps were, like near Woodstock. And was your mom and dad's common language Yiddish? Would they speak to each other? No, Yiddish? I mean, mostly so we didn't understand if there was somebody to say that they didn't want us. So, But they spoke to their parents and grandparents in Yiddish, though. Yeah. Do you remember an expression that they would, an expression that they would say that you came to understand, but that they... Uh, that, no, they just, but they're, all their words of love, like, you know, I was always Yingala, you know, and, and um, the kids, the girls were Madeala, and I mean... And if they were not happy, they used... No, they didn't use it. They used English if they weren't happy. But all their expressions of love were in Yiddish. Um, but I don't remember expressions that... I mean, they really utilized it so that we just didn't... Because it was never used until there was something secret to be told. Hold on one sec. Jack? Jack? Yeah. You got to take the speakerphone off, honey. It's bleeding through. Okay. Sorry, love. Thank you. During the pandemic, that was the, uh, during the pandemic, that was, I'd be recording and there'd be one of the kids or, you know, Jacqueline or someone, you know, we live together. Like they make a noise and I'd be like, uh, guys, I'm recording in here, like a little bit quieter. And then I'd go and I'd do another take for like the Friday night service because we were pre-recording the Friday night service. Then there'd be something else. And there's one 
version. It was it was me. There was a tripod video that I was making of myself being like, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. You know, we're thinking of you. Hope you're doing well. And then there's a clang in the background. And I'm like, and then I did like take two. And I saved the video because by like take five, I'm like losing it. And of course, at the same time, I'm trying to, you know, pretend to to my congregation. Everything's great. And later we watched it as a family and we were crying. We were laughing. So that is hard. so funny. Because by the end, I'm like, for the love of God. <laughs> and you set them all up like side by side? Yeah. So I, I just had the podcast, you know, I just had the uh, tripod here and then I would just press record and I would do as many takes as I needed to until I got it right. I would just let it keep rolling. And then after I, but sometimes it would take seven takes. That's and then, then I'd go and stop it. And then I'd, you know, cut the clip down and send it in. But in this case, I finally got the good tape, but it literally took like a half an hour to do like a two-minute Someone on my team did a, 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 a reel of bloopers of things that just went wrong. And like, you know, like three minutes of just, you know, oh, Jesus Christ, like that kind of catching that right. kind of thing. And it was I great. I see that. Um, okay, so you are a real New Yorker. You grew up in Manhattan, parents both from new york brooklyn yeah and uh and you've lived in the new york area other than your time in israel pretty much your whole life right until i went to new jersey i I lived in new york my whole life and and university was hofstra which my dad was professor really and i grew up on that campus because i'd go with him to work and so basically jersey's as far as you've gone from home that's true yeah except for israel yeah but then you come out to California and, you know, try to lure you out here. It's pretty nice out here, right? It is beautiful out here. That walk today was incredible. So one of the things that's really powerful about your book, I want to pivot to your book, To Build a Brave Space, The Making of a Spiritual First Responder. And um, thank you because of our friendship. I got a chance to read it before it was even released. And I got to talk to you a little bit about it as you were writing it. And first of all, I so admire you that the middle of a lot of it you wrote the middle of the pandemic i mean I, I think almost all of it during the pandemic yeah so with everything else that was going on dealing with you know having all your kids at home and you know you weren't homeschooling them because they weren't little little kids but they were you know young enough they needed your your support and your help and trying to be a good spouse trying to run your temple was that uh experience of writing during the pandemic was that helpful healing <laughs> Bless you. Bless you, my son. Bless you, my son. Three times, that's good luck. That's good luck. Yeah. Um, all right, tell me the question again. So was was writing this book during the pandemic, did you find that to be somewhat healing and helpful? Did it help you keep your sanity in some ways? Or was it like, oh my God, how did you... How did you do that? You know, in fairness, I wrote it, the first manuscript before COVID, and got back my notes as COVID started. And the publisher said two things. One is, we're a bunch of notes that, of course, you would get. And two is, I'm going to let you out of your contract if you want, because I can't use this manuscript. Now that COVID's happened, you have to reframe it. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, so many hours went in already, I was not going to not write it. And I would say... It so was, reframe it meaning like a full rewrite. A full rewrite. Right. Basically, it was two, I had to write the book twice. And uh, 
But the second time, he wanted it reframed as a memoir, which is why the first 70% is. And he thought that the credibility I would gain from people learning about me as a human being would allow me to make the political commentary I make at the end of the book. So what was renewing about the work during the pandemic was digging into parts of my life that honestly I'd forgotten about. And I worked with someone to help draw it out of me because I didn't know how to do that. So he would do things like, so tell me, what was your address of your house as a child? And in seconds, I would say, oh, 15 Buckingham Place. And then suddenly, I would have a memory from 1973. Oh, my God. And he was was a journalist once upon a time. And he would ask just odd questions that would suddenly unpack stories of my life. That part was renewing the writing on top of everything else that you and I were doing to try to keep a congregation together um, was actually pretty grating. So it was a mixture. Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to you because some of what you share in the book, I feel like had you done it at another time, of course it would be different. I mean, I don't feel that way. I know that, right? Like if you tried to access those same memories or tried to do a rewrite or whatever it was, but that you did that in that moment, you know, it really comes through a lot of the anguish and a lot of the joy, a lot of the beauty. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about the book, and you shared with me earlier that this was actually a su- suggestion from the publisher, is uh, is the making of a spiritual first responder. And I'd love to hear more about what that means to you. What does it mean to be a spiritual first responder? And even though that suggestion might have come from someone else, um, it it is exactly right based on what I read. Well, thank you for that. I, I want to comment on just the co- the the comment you made earlier, which was that when you're in a vulnerable space and COVID made us so raw and so vulnerable, you are able to talk about things in ways that you hadn't before. So that's exactly right. I, I, it's a different book because of the time in which it was written. Uh, the spiritual first responder, the reason I had first rejected it is that people like you and I, you know, are already perceived to think highly of ourselves. Uh, given that we get up and, and give opinions with a great emphasis, etc. But the truth is, is that I know you well enough and you know me well enough to know that we actually work really hard on being humble. So who, who are we to be spiritual first responders? After all, EMTs and doctors and nurses and frontline workers are working with blood and uh, life and death emergencies all the time. And the publisher said, but you are serving the soul um, of people in that same way. And I want you to dig into that experience. And suddenly, again, what did that trigger for me was 9-11. I was uh, four years into my rabbinate. You were three. And um, I remember the day vividly, as many of us who were New Yorkers do. And uh, instead of going through detail by detail, what I'll say to you is we all got to my senior rabbi's office. And we were a team of four or five. And by that point, he had had uh, listed every single person whose office was in the Twin Towers. It wasn't like you could access it on Shulcloud, a CRM on our, you know, our phones. And he basically, you know, said, okay, you take six, you take six, et cetera, et cetera. And we went from apartment building to apartment building and knocked on doors, rang doorbells. And this is the afternoon of September 11th. Barely. It was, it, was, it was midday. It wasn't even afternoon yet. First thing we did was go talk to our kids in the day school, like you guys here, wrote of Shalom at a day school. And then we went place to place. And one of the doorbells that I rang, I opened the door and immediately knew this was a family of loss. It was almost like it was a Shiva house already. 
the then widow, although we didn't know if she was a widow yet, but it was pretty known that she that's, knew that he was in the building. The building had come down, so how, yeah, she how got, could he possibly she, have? She had survived. one of those phone calls where he said, "I'm not sure what's going on here. Smoke's coming in, and uh, we could feel the heat, and I, I don't know what to do." And everyone always talks about you know the great last words. And I said to her, "So what did you say to him?" And she said, "Just get the hell out of there." And then the phone cut off and she always felt a degree of guilt that she didn't even think to say, I love you, which of course she did, because in that moment, all you want is your loved one to get out of there. So I, you know, by the way, is just so incredibly painful to imagine. And then you had to live that. She had to live that. And then you had to relive that every time, you know, you sat down to write that story. You had to go back to that place and now you're talking about your book to others. You have to go back to that place. So I think that takes um, that takes a lot out of you. That that story always takes a lot out of me. And, and it's amazing. Think about how much imagery we've had in our 25 plus years as rabbis and how certain images are as clear as day as I'm looking at you right now. And I could see what each of her kids looked like. I could see what her in-laws, meaning those, the two that just lost their son looked like. I could tell I, all of it. I, and he was one of the only 200 bodies were recovered out of the 3,000 lost at the Twin Towers. And his was one of them. So I remember the funeral vividly also. Um, yeah, it's something that, that... So that was the first time that I felt like a spiritual first responder where I showed up to someone's home that I did not know. It's a congregation then of 1,900 families. It's about 8,000 people. So there are people that you hate to say it, but you just don't know. And um, my introduction to her was the day that she found out that her husband was killed. And, uh, but also that, that going from apartment to apartment and ringing doorbells felt like what mm. you do when you're responding um, the way anyone would respond in crisis. Yeah. I, I grew up uh, the son of a doctor and not just, uh, not just a doctor, but a general surgeon. So getting that call in the middle of the night and you know, hearing that waking up, but then going back to sleep, knowing that my father wouldn't be going back to sleep, you know, that he would be. And my room, my brother and I shared a room and it was right next door to my mom and dad's room. So we'd hear the phone ring. I'd hear kind of a muffled conversation. I'd sort of drift back to sleep, but then I'd hear the door open. I'd hear the feet, you know, his his footsteps out uh, down the hallway. And in the morning, my dad was usually gone anyway, because he would get up early and make rounds. But uh, But there were times, you know, when I knew that he was gone because he was doing an emergency surgery. Uh, and I remember as a young rabbi and even as a rabbinic student, sometimes when people would say things about our, my service, our service, I would respond and say, well, you know, it's not like being a doctor. You know, it's not um, life or death work in that way. But, uh, but certainly when, when we think about the soul, you know, and how we care for the soul, it is that. And I've come to appreciate that more and more. And, you know, with all due respect, as you, as you framed it, you know, for the, the EMTs and others who are, um, who are out there and, and often literally putting their own lives on the line. Yes, that's, that's one level of service that's pretty amazing. But, uh, and as you talked about those images, uh, in my mind, as you were saying that, there was this image that came through of the death of a young person. And, and I ended up um, going and um, not just 
being there in the, at the scene of, of where this person had died, but also staying with the body until the coroner came, you know, alone in the room because the family, understandably, you know, could, couldn't be bear to, to do that. And you can't, can't ever get those images out of your mind. They're there, they're there, and they can be haunting. I think we take those images with us to the grave. And you know what? If we didn't, something would be wrong with us. So and it's not like every experience I take with me, but I, I am impacted by every experience, but those experiences are indelibly marked. And again, I, I do think there'd be something wrong with us if we didn't. Right. One beautiful story, a colleague of mine told me that um, he got a phone call once in the middle of the night and he went and answered the phone, you know, groggy, picks it up. Rabbi, I'm just calling to, to tell you some good news. And he said, what? He said, I'm a, and the person on the other end of the phone said, I'm a grandmother. And it was a temple board member. And she said, I know it, I know it wasn't nice to wake you up, but a lot of times you get woken up with tragedy and you have to go rush to the hospital to do a vidui, you know, a final confessional with someone who's about to die, or you have to go and sit in someone's home after they've experienced a death. And I just thought I'd wake you up in the middle of the night to tell you really good news. My daughter just had a baby. And I love that. I was like, oh, and that's something I remember too, is like those, those indelible images and memories of some of the trauma. But then there's those indelible images and memories of like that chuppah, that baby naming, that couple that tried so long, you know, and, and tried so hard to have that child. And then finally the baby came, you know, the person who, the miraculous recovery, where it was like, uh, we did not think this person would make it. So that's one of the ways I try to manage it is, you know, see if I could, can I get equal measure, even even more uh, of the joyous stuff? How do you, what are some of the ways it, that you carry that and you, you, you know you're going to carry that with you your entire life and you continue to hold on to hope and, uh, and joy? I, you know, I, I am, and maybe it's just our DNA as Jews, but I'm one of those people that believes that like the sun comes up every day, uh, we have the chance to renew. And that um, yesterday was yesterday doesn't mean we don't take its lessons, but I literally get up in the morning and take a huge deep breath and I try to connect the cycle of that breath to the cycle of the fact that the sun came up and the two of those things, I feel like gives me that extra shot. Uh, I used to have, um, not used to, still have my mentor's wife, who's a mentor unto herself, my former senior rabbi. Um, his wife used to say, you know, you have a bad night on the beam the good news is, is that you have Shabbat morning service tomorrow morning. And you get to do it all over again. And if you carry last night, it's like you and I, big baseball fans. You have to have a short memory. Right. So a guy strikes out four times the night before doesn't mean he's not going to hit a home run the next day, unless he believes he's always a strikeout, right. you know, victim. And I try not to be a victim ever. And, and not just that, but I I know we, you know, you live on the West Coast. One of the things you don't have, we just uh, I was out there, you know, relishing in the sun today. It's cold back at home on the East Coast, but we have spring. And we have dead uh, trees all winter long that look like there'll never be life again. And suddenly, like in March, you get that little bud and then a flower and then a leaf and then renewal. Right. And that, is, that, that in itself makes me believe that the fact that if the tree can, then so you, you, right. can, I, you and I can. One of my favorite texts and, and an insight around that text that, that, that connects so beautifully to what you just said and I absolutely adore is... Um, the tradition, a lot of people know, in the morning, uh, traditionally the first words you say are words of gratitude, modani or modani, uh, for females. Um, 
and and then hechazarta bi nishmati. Thank you, God, who has returned my soul to me. And then it says Raba emunatecha. And I was doing research on that prayer for a project I was working on, and I was like, where is that prayer from? And I looked at these books that you know for listeners who are who are into these things like the Donin to pray as a Jew. You know, yeah. it was like Modani's not in there. And then I went to like more classical sources on Jewish prayer, Elbogen. There's nothing on Modani. And um, later I had a conversation with our teacher, Larry Hoffman, and he said, oh, the reason it's not in those commentaries is because it's not in the Siddur. That prayer you say when you wake up in the morning before you put glasses on, before you wash your face, like you you don't have a book to read. So most prayer books don't have a commentary on it. So then mm. I just did word searches and I found that phrase, Rabba Emunatecha, it appears in the in the Bible. And it's the, uh, and it only appears in one place, and it is in the least obvious place. It's in the Book of Lamentations. Wow! So the prayer we say every morning, saying "Thank you, God, for another day," comes from absolutely, you know, arguably the darkest book in the entire Bible, uh, attributed to Jeremiah. It's, it's, you know, it's about, it's a lament for the destruction of Jerusalem when the first temple is destroyed. You know, in the sixth century before the common era so like how could there be this message of hope coming out of that and where it is it's in chapter three and the 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 writer says you know it's like my teeth are broken i'm in such pain i've lost everything how can i go another day and then he says Chadashim but but each day is renewal Chadashim mm. each boker is new rabba emunatecha great is your faithfulness and it was like all of a sudden, all these things came together for me where it's like, I woke up, the sun is shining, or even if you know there's cloud cover, like the world is still in existence. That's enough, God. I, I want to be grateful and thankful and, and, and your faithfulness, God, that you gave us another day. And you know, on September 12th, can you get up and say, I don't, I don't know how we're going to get through this day. As we're recording this, you know, every hour there's a new update on the number of dead in Turkey and Syria, and the numbers are just mind-boggling, you know, 25,000, and you know the number's going to keep going up, and stories of people trapped, and but it's like, there's still hope. There's still another day. So one of the things I feel so grateful about as a Jew is like, think of all the tools we have that can help us hold on to hope, you know, remain somewhat, you know, open to joy, like just another day and not just spiritual first responders, but everybody needs that. Well, you know, what helps us, it's, it's, I should, we should never discount the importance of God in our lives, but God works through our hands. And the little girl, the oldest of the person who I mentioned before who died in 9-11, she hated that day every year, the yurt site, not just for the obvious reasons, but more because the whole world made a big deal of it. So she always felt like it's bad enough I lost my dad, but now the whole world has to put their attention on me. They want me to go down to this ceremony. They want me to say his name out loud. All I want to do is be a normal young lady. And it was one of these uh, yurt sites, maybe it was the second, so maybe it was 03. And I thought I would make my way to the school and help her. And all it took was another one of her classmates saying, come on, Hannah, grabbed her hand, and just went running up the stairs to school. Mm. And I remember preaching about that in a sermon saying that, you know, here's this kid. All she needed was her father back, but that wasn't going to happen. 
The next thing she needed was for her classmate not to speak to her, not to tell her it was going to be better, but just to hold her hand and take the energy of one hand to the other to pull her up the stairs. Mm -hmm. And she was okay again that day. So yeah, I mean, it's the sun coming up and it's the fact that we have the ability to really lift others up. It's beautiful because you put those two things together. You know, one is part of the natural world, just like, okay, life can not just exist on this planet, but flourish. And surely there's life somewhere else in the universe, but we haven't found it yet. So like, this is all we got. Thank God that we have this. Like, right. That's great. But then there's the realization that like, but if I had to do this all by myself, if I had to navigate this world, like if I was the last human being, you know, around, like it'd be pretty hard to have much to hope in. But knowing that I have a friend who can reach a handout, if you're lucky enough to, you know, have a spouse, especially if it's a spouse you love and right. like being with, you know, if you have, you know, children or parents who are there to nurture you and a community that's there to help you, then it's like, okay, you know, um, somehow, some way we can get through this. One of the things you talk about in the book, and then I want to get to some of the insights that you bring around our political life in America, but there's a chapter on fear and uh, you know how do you move through fear, acknowledge it, but not living in it, not dwell in it. Um, what are some insights that led you to that chapter and uh, and I'm also interested in, you know, in the, in the time since you've had a chance not just to write it, then rewrite it, reflect on it. Have any of your thoughts about fear changed? Uh, you know, there's a difference. And, and uh, you know, I'll bring this back again to you that, that um, not, not everything. 9-11 happened so early in our careers that I think it, it, it informs so many different parts of a rabbit. And in fact, I would say that in the four or five or six serious crises that have befallen us since then, I had a paradigm from which to work, given that we were in crisis, we had to act, and I was able to look back and say, okay, there's sort of a checklist that we rabbis use when these things happen. And generally, when you're a kid, you know there's a difference between being with trouble and in trouble. When I was a kid (laughs) and my mother called me and said, Matthew, you're in trouble, you would sink. Like for that moment, you would feel like you were drowning and there's a riptide from which you cannot emerge. And that's different than being with trouble. So N means you're drowning. It means you're paralyzed. It means you can't operate. With it means that you know it's there. It's part of the fabric of your being. And somehow it's just one of the pieces through which you have to navigate. And there's it doesn't mean that... I think it's a lie when anyone says they're not scared of anything. Fearlessness does not mean that you're not scared. It means you know how to navigate through it. I think those who make believe they never get scared are probably not facing their stuff. And I, more and more as I evolve as a person and as a rabbi, as a father, as a husband, I try to acknowledge every part of what I feel. And that gives me courage and it gives me a sense of bravery to navigate through it, as opposed to being so stuck that I can't see. It's sort of like, how am I ever going to write this college paper? Whatever year you're in college, it's never going to happen. Well, if you believe that, you're just going to sit there and do nothing and just feel worse. If you feel like, okay, I'm scared and I'm going to do this piece of research or this piece of of, chavruta, of talking with another person that can help bring out ideas, you're going to start to work through it. So that has never changed. I've just gotten better at it as I've evolved and, and gotten wiser as a human being. Right. And I like that distinction, you know, in or with, um, and certainly as you, as you did, it's, you can think about it 
terms of trouble. You can think about it in terms of fear. Um, how do you acknowledge it and find ways to work through it? And I find also just confidence in knowing that there have been moments that I've been afraid before. And then I use these strategies, these friends, this technique. I acknowledged it. I, you know, I, I allowed myself to, um, to feel it, but, but then remembered I could move through it. The other thing that I found really helpful, this was um, Jonathan Slater, um, our teacher from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. He talked about the difference between saying, I am afraid, and saying, I feel fear bubbling up inside of me. I am afraid sort of defines you, you know, or I am fearful, like that's who I am. But there's fear in me. It's like, oh, this is a condition that I'm experiencing right now, but it doesn't define me. And and it could be around fear. It could be around, you know, anxiety. It could be around sadness. Instead of saying, you know, I am sad, it's there's sadness in me now, you know. But then I know, oh, it doesn't have to be the permanent condition, you know. Um, you talk a lot in the book about how we can um, make sense of the political divisions that are such a part of our life as Americans, but more broadly, obviously, when we, you know, if you read the the, the newspapers uh, and you see what's happening outside of the United States, this is not unique to our country. And certainly we're in a moment when we're, we're seeing, you know, great and terrible divisions uh, in Israel as well. What are some of the ways that, um, that you see these changes reflected in your rabbinate and your community? What are some of the ways that you are learning to navigate them so that we can continue to talk to each other and be in relationship with each other, be in community with each other, notwithstanding the very real divisions we might experience in terms of how we see the world politically. The metaphor that I use that you know very well, and um, anyone who studies our tradition, you look back 2,000 years to the destruction of our temples, and on paper, we know what happened. We lost to an enemy that was much stronger than we were. But it's interesting, you know, the Hanukkah story, the Purim story, we have many times won when the chips were down and the odds were against us. The difference here was that we hated each other. That's something that we call sinat chinam, a senseless hatred, where we argued for the sake of arguing, we hated for the sake of hating, and it made us porous, it made us open for attack, it made us unable to be able to fight back against any enemy because we were so busy beating the living daylights out of each other. I believe, without being too melodramatic, that we are in a moment in America where we need to look in the mirror and realize that perhaps some of our polarity has crossed the line from incivility to senseless hatred, where it's not just issues that mean everything, it's issues that mean less than everything, but we somehow make that like it's everything. We make it like it's life and death. And I believe that if we don't do something about it, we are... Um, possibly in for the end of our empire. I don't care what aisle you stand on politically. I think I think everyone could agree that the last five to ten years have shown that the democracy is not for sure. And we're already, you know, Israel's only turning 75. They're really still nascent. We, we're a pretty old democracy. But to see that our institutions rock the way they did should scare us. Right. Not paralyze us, but should scare us. So... Um, I had to do some self-searching. I come from a political orientation uh, that I'm proud of. It's what my family raised me with. My problem is that religion and politics were one and the same for us as kids. And um, a lot of the fervor 
uh, with which my parents talked about their political philosophies and activism came at Shabbat dinner table, came in explanations to us about what the Torah portion was that week. My childhood rabbi spoke with the same vim and vigor, and you couldn't tell the difference between Torah and democratic politics, to be honest. Now, without apology, I still lean left of center, but I realized when I got to this job that I'm in 17 years that not everyone believes what I believe, and if I conflate Torah with politics, they're going to feel unheard, unseen, and even worse, some of them questioned if I'd be there for them pastorally because I disagree so wholeheartedly with them politically. And that was a wake-up call because because like your dad, your dad would never not operate on someone because their politics were different than his were. God forbid should we not tend to someone pastorally because their politics are different than ours are. And uh, so that's that was the real inflection point for me where I decided that I actually became a political independent for the congregation. Not because I was not proud of my politics, but because I wanted them to see that I was an independent operator vis-a-vis them and my relationship with them. Hmm. Yeah, the degree to which it has become, as you said, not just I disagree with you, but I can't have a relationship with you anymore. Yeah, I hate um, you. Yeah, right. that's to me feels like um, you know a, a tremendous change. And I grew up in a home where my father uh, was registered as a Republican, my mother was registered as a Democrat, and they would argue about political matters, but you know, obviously loved each other very deeply. And the thought that somehow, if we were in rival parties, we couldn't, you know, um, we couldn't talk to each other or love each other or be decent people, you know, that that's like, what are we talking about? And um, and I, I certainly, you know, I don't, I don't want to um, give in, God forbid. But is it something that alarms me or concerns me? Absolutely. What are some things in terms of your own, you know, leadership? You mentioned, um, you know becoming more politically independent, however you end up voting in the general election or whatever you said, I want to symbolically, as it were, um, you know, signal to everybody that that I'm not going to choose sides. What are some things in terms of the way you teach or preach that you found to be helpful to keep people open, you know, to one another? Because you want to keep your congregation together. You don't want the congregation to feel like it's it's tearing apart at the seams. Correct. So I started through, someone said to me, I was on a long walk with a senior colleague of ours who said, if we have good faith discussions, meaning we really come in, not just trying to get into an, a discussion so that while the person is telling you their side of the story, if you will, their truth, you're already preparing your rebuttal. Well, you actually know, you're actually going to stop it, almost like in couples therapy. You hear what they say, you repeat what they say, and you get confirmation that what they said, or the way you perceive what Did they I said. I understand that correctly. Correct, right. exactly right. So I hate to be so, uh, so infantilizing about it, but I really think it comes down to, are you actually hearing? And so, I don't, By the way, I don't think that's infantilized. I think it's actually, it's... Um, ennobling and it shows great respect for someone and hopefully they wouldn't hear it that way if you say i want to make sure i understood what you just said to me and i want to say those words back to you you know i i think that's shows profound respect for the other person i hope that's true and then you check yourself there's a talmudic uh, teaching that says when you hear the truth of another and it really disturbs you to the point of rage and anger you should stop and check yourself because it's probably telling you that the reason you're so angry 
is a piece of that truth with which you disagree is still indeed true. Hmm. And it's really getting to you because you're like, how can every fiber of my being disagree with that when I know a part of me understands that what they're saying is true? Hmm. And that means you, so what do you do? I try to take uh, incendiary issues and leave the politics out and deal with the value statements underneath. Let's take something that I hope is pretty easy. You take hunger. I haven't met many people who believe that people legitimately should be hungry in this world. Now, one might vote and say, I don't believe in welfare. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and let's end hunger. And the other side might say, and again, I know I'm being simplistic here, let's give out you know, benefits to be able to make sure that people aren't hungry. Either way, can we first agree that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't have a nation of hungry people? And if we do, we talk through that and we understand why it is, I think we could start to see our way towards voting whichever way we vote, but to somehow mitigate the same problem. Now, I hope hunger is an easy one, but I think it works with immigration. Couldn't we agree that security of our borders is something really important for those who really fight for that, as long as what we get on the other side is utter compassion and love for each of those people who are being vetted as they come into our country. So you don't get put into tents with with metal blankets or aluminum blankets. I'm being a little sarcastic here. You get to stay in the Hilton until you're finished being vetted. And once you're being vetted, just like our ancestors were at Ellis Island, you know what, if you're replete with disease or you have robbed banks, maybe you don't get to come in. I mean, maybe that's part of what we give up. But every single other person is going to be treated with the love and respect that any stranger in the Bible, when we learn to love our stranger as ourselves, are then treated in that way. So I could keep on going. And I think almost every issue, I think abortion is probably the hardest, but I think every other issue, you can find not a middle ground because... I don't know if you know what the euphemism for moderate is. Um, it's wimp or it's wishy-washy. And I don't believe what I call in this book the radical center is wishy-washy. I think that you care as much about dialogue as you do about what you stand up for. And that uh, in the Bible, it says that we wipe idolaters off the face of the earth. By the time of the Talmud, they're already suggesting that we are in dialogue even mm. with idolaters. Why? Because nice. even our enemies might have something to teach us. It's nice. And as you said that, I was thinking of uh, the teaching in the Talmud where um, Rabbi Meir and his spouse, Bruria, um, they have some, you know, some no goodniks living in their neighborhood and they're making a racket and, you know, um, really annoying Rabbi Meir. And, and he utters a prayer that the wicked should be destroyed. And then his wife says, don't pray that the wicked should be destroyed pray that wickedness should be destroyed. And I love that. You know, it's like you don't have to pray that those people die, that those people, you know, uh, suffer some terrible misfortune. Instead, you could pray that over time they could come to understand things in a in a more compassionate way, even, even in, in your own way. You know, you could say, I just wish they saw it the way I saw it. But that doesn't mean that you're canceling them or um, trying to uh, cast them off in any way. So I, once again, there's so many tools in our tradition to help us with that. And the other one I thought of when you were talking was um, 
uh, our youngest daughter is uh, a first-year student at uh, Barnard and the Jewish Theological Seminary, and she's taking this uh, great books class, but because it's part of JTS, those great books include like the book of Jeremiah, mm. and she's reading Maimonides' Eight Chapters, which is his introduction to the Mishnah. And in one of the chapters, we were studying it together, because that's one of the few subjects that she has that I can actually help her with. So uh, we were studying it together, and there's a whole chapter about moderation. And for Maimonides, you know, the middle path, the golden mean, the radical center, however you want to frame it, that was the the ideal place to find yourself. It's, you're not extreme on this side. You're not extreme on that side. You find that middle place. It's not about being a wimp. It's not about being wishy-washy. It's trying to find the that happy medium between those places. And I think there are so many issues like the ones you just enumerated where you could come up with, okay, we're not going to have open borders on the one hand, and we're also not going to put people in cages. Who are we? Barbarians? I mean, you know, there's got to be a place in the middle that we can that we can find. And I think about that here in Los Angeles when we think about how we respond to people who don't have a place to live. You know, we're a city of 10 million people. And there are estimates of 50, 60, 70,000 homeless people, which seems like a huge number. But when you think about it as a percentage of 10 million, it's actually not a big number. It's a very small number relative to the number of housed individuals in the city. So then the question is, can't a city of this size and this wealth find a way for people who don't have a place to live, first of all, to move towards um, being able to be rooted in that way? But also, until they find such a solution, can't we also provide toilets? Can't we provide showers? Can't we provide meals? Can't we provide dignity? Can't we provide uh, mental health care and uh, and health care? I mean, can't we provide those things in a city of this size with this wealth? Um, so that to me is another example of kind of how you get to that that middle. What I want to um, ask you to, to end us with or, or conclude with is, and I know this is something, I think you told me that your son Jake it was reduced your sermons, didn't didn't he say? Yeah. Like every sermon has to have hope. What, what, how did he, he put it? He, he said, "Dad, why do I have to come on the holidays to hear you preach? You only give one message, after all, in all the years I've been alive." And I said, well, "Yeah, what's that?" And he said, "Hope, hope, hope. That's all you care about is hope." I love and, it. Uh, so I, I made fun of him with that voice, you know, before he graduated high school. And I said, "You know, you're damn right. I'm never gonna." do anything but preach about hope. We had professors in rabbinic school who basically said we all preach one sermon. Right. That, that, that's mine. Um, so I want but, you to leave us with, uh, and I think that was the year that he also um, blew the shofar, because I watched uh, one of the beautiful things about uh, the world we find ourselves in right now, for all of us as uh, Jews and listeners and people who are interested, is, but certainly for me, in terms of my colleagues, is I can go watch what you said, and I can see it too, which is really fun. So um, I think that was during... It was, it was during COVID, right? Or when he, he, he returned? He started blowing shofar from 13 years old until he graduated high school. But yes, he was, remember, those were sanctuaries that were empty. We were, right. we were I think you pre-taped completely. Right. And we and took you did a it. chance and did it in person, which was taking a chance because he didn't right. know what was going to happen. But the only other person I got to be with in the sanctuary besides my clergy team was my son. And he blew, so, and he blew the show. And it was, that was just beautiful. Yeah. So you, I keep on cutting you off your question. Right. So. No, no, I love that. First of all, I, I remember watching that. I remember him teasing you in a sweet and loving way, as our children do. Um, but okay, so hope, hope, hope. Um, there's a lot of light in our world, also some darkness. Um, give, us, give us something that'll bring us to hope, hope, hope. So uh, hope is, uh, you know, it's not a magic 
uh, formula. And I've always been, as much as I believe in hope and optimism, I don't believe you slap a happy face in something and say, don't worry, be happy. I just don't think it works. It's a great song, but I don't think it works otherwise. So I think this process is about us being the hope that we want to manifest in the world. And what does that mean? That we have to actually stop and breathe and try to figure out why another person has the orientation they do before we call them a racist, before they call them a bigot, before we call them a hater. Why do they act that way? And isn't it incumbent upon us to try to figure out where it is that people come from, what battle they're dealing with inside? Because you know what? I have plenty of my own battles inside that no one knows about, and I'm sure you do also. And so I think the hope comes from the space that we make to understand the other, especially when the other is so different than we are. I don't want any of your listeners to believe that anything goes, because it doesn't. I think there are red lines. I think that utter hate as a philosophy of life is not acceptable. I, I don't have tolerance for that kind of thing. But someone who's trying to work their way through who they are, um, I want to understand why they are who they are, why they're working it through. I want them to give me the same sense of respect. And I'll, I guess I'll end with this, that when I have taken really incendiary positions, and one time it was on immigration, I had 30 or 40 hours of phone calls that week. And they would all start off this way. Matt, I want to speak to you. And I would say, okay, hi, so-and-so. Before we speak, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. And then I would say, and before you tell me anything else, how's your wife and kids doing? Oh, they're actually doing okay. How, how are Lauren and your kids? By the time we got through taking a moment to actually care about each other, we had a very tough discussion in a very different tone. And I know that we have the ability, the potential to turn the flame down a little bit, to bring the heat down. And when we do, when we work through our differences, I believe we find not a kumbaya moment, because I think, again, that's fake, but a, a moment of reality where we can meet each other and perhaps even, can I say, see the face of God in these really tough discussions because rupture gives the potential for what we call tikkun, which is to fix what it is that's broken. And I think that's possible every single day of our lives. Rabbi Matthew Gortz, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for me personally, more importantly, for your friendship, I love um, that I can pick up the phone and ask you a question about a difficult um, life cycle situation or about synagogue management. Um, also, find out how Lauren and the kids are doing and how you're doing. We can have a laugh. We can talk uh, about our beloved Mets. Um, I, I just feel really, really lucky to have you in my life, to have that friendship and uh, to be able to spend this time with you today. Thank you. Yeah, I feel exactly the same and look forward to many, many more years of it. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My deep gratitude to my friend and colleague, Rabbi Matthew Gewurz. Thanks to the Search for Meaning team who makes these podcasts possible. Our producer, Ryan Gorsi, our editor, Raz Husseini. Hey, share the podcast with a friend. Maybe they'll want to join in, listen up, learn something, be inspired. Who knows? Everybody stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay tuned.